Amen. All right, everybody have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 2. Today we are going to cover the consistency factor, and the rule basically states this, when approaching the Bible, you must pay attention to the consistency of God. Key verses that highlight this, right there on your study sheet. We actually talked about this this past Wednesday night. Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Why would the sons of Jacob not be consumed? Because God has... Starts with an M. Talked about it Wednesday night. Mercy on them. Just like He has mercy on you and I. Even though we deserve to be consumed, we deserve to be destroyed, God has mercy upon us, and He never changes. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, He's the same yesterday, Old Testament, today, New Testament, and forever, eternity to come. James 1.17, I love this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He's not going to change his mind. He might feel regret. He might feel remorse about certain things. We've talked about that before, but he's never going to change his mind as far as how he acts. Now, breaking this down and looking at the law of first mention, how does this apply to Bible study? Look at that paragraph there. God is holy, perfect, and without error. God may change how he deals with mankind from dispensation to dispensation. We talked about this. But his nature and his truth is eternally consistent. That does not change. Once God's truth is established, it will never deviate to the right or the left. In the same way, the first time something is mentioned in the Bible will establish a truth or pattern that is consistently found throughout the rest of the Bible. And this is what we refer to as the law of first mention. This is a great tool to utilize in your personal Bible reading and personal Bible studying. Number one, because it's so incredibly simple to utilize. And it also really helps unlock many doors in your Bible reading and Bible studying. A quick point I want to make on this, and if you want to take notes, you might want to mark this down. Just because something is a pattern, or sometimes we'll use the phrase a type or a typology, meaning it's a picture of something. Like, for example, Moses is a type of Christ. He's a picture or representative of how Christ is. Moses is a great person to look at if you want to see what godly biblical leadership is like. For those of you who are leading someone else in discipleship or leading a Bible study at school. Those who want to be a leader in the future. Man, study out the life of Moses. You'll find a lot about how he and his picture and representation of Christ, how much his leadership kind of mirrors how Jesus Christ is. But with Moses, and like all typologies and patterns, you know what ultimately happens? They end up breaking down. Where that picture, that typology stops for a momentary time is when you see Moses killing an Egyptian in cold blood after he got him alone and tried to bury and hide this sin, thinking that nobody saw it. That's where the typology and the pattern starts to break down. How does that apply to this rule? When you look at the first time a word is mentioned and you see how does God describe this word the very first time it's brought up, what are the events surrounding it in the context... And then you trace that word all throughout the rest of the Bible. You start to see the pattern from that very first mention. Eventually, though, it'll break down. It doesn't unlock every door. So don't think that every single time it shows up, this is exactly what it's going to mean or what it's going to show you. Another thing you want to pay pay, uh, close attention to is you want to pay attention to how a word might be spelled when you're searching for it. You know, a quick example up here. If you guys could see this. Let's say you wanted to look up the very first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, And we're going to see this here in a little bit. The first time love shows up in the Bible might be later on in the Bible as opposed to how it's spelled lovest. You guys see what I mean by that? And so you have to kind of go through multiple spellings of a word to see, okay, what's the earliest mention of any form of the word? So if you type in love and just search for it, Genesis 27.4, it says love. However, if you do lovest, Genesis 22 shows up before Genesis 27. And that's usually the, or that's the earliest form of it. A kind of a good rule of thumb, if you guys use Blue Letter Bible, is if you take the base word, the very base word of anything, and you just type it in, and then you put an asterisk next to it and search it, 
every single form of that word shows up. So you'll get lovest, you'll get loved, you'll get loved, loved, you'll get love. The only thing you won't get is loving because it drops the E whenever you do the ING. So you gotta be careful with that. But just a little quick tool for you guys. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but there you go, that's a freebie. Have at it. What's going on? Okay. So some examples of the law of first mention. You guys are in Genesis chapter 2, but the very first time we see day show up, and actually the consequential next five days of the word day, you know what you find? Is that the seven days of creation were literal 24-hour days because of the words morning and evening. Those first six days, anytime the word day is mentioned in those first six verses, it always concludes with, and the morning and the evening were the first day, second day, third day. However, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made. And He what? rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it he set it apart because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made and the evening and the morning were the seventh day I just fooled like some of you guys in here the others were wise enough to catch that it doesn't actually say that at the end of verse 3 the seventh day, there is no evening and morning. It's almost as if that after six days of God working, six days of the Spirit of God moving, on the seventh day, God decides to rest and He sets it apart. You could even say it's His day, the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, where He rests, where He sits down because the work is finished, and there is no end to that day. There is no evening. Hmm, kind of interesting. Look over at Genesis chapter 3. A passage that should be familiar with all of you guys, and I was going to skip over this one real quick. I'm not going to have too much commentary on it, but man, if there's a passage, if there's a group of passages that you never want to grow tired of. You never want to make sure that you get bored with it. You never want to make sure that as someone else is reading it, you're already kind of filling in the blanks of what that person's going to say because you've read it so many times. If there is a passage not to be too familiar with, it's this one. Because this is the first time that Satan shows up in the Bible and it's Satan's first words. And man, oh man, I can go on about this one. But look at verse 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle. In other words, you're not going to see him coming. He's not the devil with the pitchfork and the, and the devil horns and the pointed tail. That's not him. He's more subtle than that. He's more sly. He's more sneaky than that. More subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, what is the very first recorded word out of Satan's mouth in your Bible? Yay. Yay. It's positive. It's a positive gesture. He's coming to you like a used car salesman or as a, a snake oil charming salesman and coming to you and trying to be very, very overly positive to try to get you to see that he's not such a bad guy, to try to get you to see that there's really nothing wrong with what you're about to do. It's okay. Yay. You know what else is interesting, and I'm not going to go too far into this, maybe on another date. Do you know that in this form of the word yay, that it's actually a conjunction? Anybody know what a conjunction is in English? Yeah. What are other words like conjunctions? Or what are other words that are conjunctions? From the song. And, but, and, or. When do you use the words and, but, and, or? You're never supposed to use them at the beginning of a sentence. That's how the rule of grammar states. No, it's always in the midst of a sentence. It always continues on the conversation that had already begun earlier. Hmm. It almost seems to indicate that this is not the first interaction that Satan has had with her. 
chew on that one for a while. Let that one cook your noodle. <laughs> Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What's he saying here? He's attacking what God had previously said to his children. It's the first mention of Satan in the Bible. It's his first words. And he deceives her. He's questioning the word of God. Hey, the reason we're doing this class is because people that you go to school with, even you guys in here, you have questions about the Bible. It's okay to have questions about the Bible. He's not asking a question about the Bible. He's questioning the authority of God's word. There's a difference. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She left out the word freely. She didn't know her Bible. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. God didn't say that. So now she's adding to the word of God. She took away and she added to the word of God. Lest ye die. And she also left out the word surely die. Man, is she off on that Bible verse. How's Bible memorization going for you guys? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So, any sins that are taking you, sideswiping you, taking you out of the game? And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Well, God said it. And there is no shadow of turning nor variableness with him, and he doesn't change, and he can't lie. So one of the two of them is a liar here. And John 8 says that the serpent was a liar from the beginning and a murderer. For God doth know, verse 5, that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods. Hmm. Uh, well, that'll take us too far down the rabbit hole. Knowing good and evil. On your outline, the serpent is consistently associated with sin and the devil. And the devil's main attack, because that's exactly what this is, is always against God and His words. There's only three times in the entire Bible. Do you know this? There's only three times in the entire Bible where Satan shows up and he's actually speaking. Oh, make no mistake about it. Satan is on every single page of your Bible. As we've learned through church history, the definition of church history is God's moving to establish His threefold plan for the universe, and the definition of church history is Satan moving to counter God. So every time you see God moving, which is on every page of the Bible, you see Satan countering that. But there's only three times in the entire Bible where Satan shows up and he's actually speaking. You might want to go through all of those times and see the consistency of what shows up. Because his same plan of attack in all three of those areas is the same plan of attack he has for your life every single day. Wouldn't it be great, Noah, if when you guys were playing against Maslin, you had their playbook and you knew that they were going to drop a bomb on you guys the very first play of that game. Wouldn't it have been great if you knew that? How that would completely change the course of how you guys prepped and how you guys played that night? Still probably would have lost, but... It's the same thing. Any war that's ever been fought, if one side knew what the other side was going to do... How much it would change the victory. How much it would change the battlefield. How much it would change the landscape. You guys have the enemy's playbook right here. You might want to take some time this week studying Genesis 3, Job chapter 1 and 2, and Matthew chapter 4 to see how the enemy comes and attacks every single time. Turn over to Genesis 22. Speaking of the enemy, go ahead and write this verse down next to Satan. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The Bible is simple. The gospel is simple. Salvation is simple. Anyone who comes along and tries to say that the gospel is not that simple and they have to take very simple passages of Scripture and complicate it and twist it to their own destruction like we talked about Wednesday night, that's not what Christ said the gospel is. Christ said the gospel is simple. But Satan, through his subtlety, tries to corrupt your minds and making you think that it's more complicated than that. Genesis 22 Look at verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, tested him. We looked at that before. And said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy 
son, thine only son, Isaac. Hopefully that's jogging your mind already. Whom thou, what? Lovest. And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. On your outline, this is the very first mention of the word love in any of its forms in your Bible. You know what pattern this is establishing? Something you'll see throughout the rest of your Bible? What true love actually is. When a father sacrifices his only son upon a mountain. And he's specific. He says Mount Moriah. And then you trace Mount Moriah throughout the Bible and you find that Mount Moriah is where Golgotha Hill just so happens to be. And you see what true love actually is. And it's twofold. True love is always unconditional and it's sacrificial. If you love something or if someone says that they love you and it has nothing to do with those two things, run away from it. It is always unconditional and sacrificial. You see that in John 3.16. Somebody quote it for me. Louder. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Thine only Son, He gave. Were there any conditions to Him giving it? Did you need to be a part of a special super secret group that God chose to be saved before the foundation of the earth, independent of your own free will? No. There's no conditions for His love that He gave. He just gave Himself knowing that people would reject Him, knowing that He died for sinners, He died for the ungodly, as we saw in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's unconditional, and it's sacrificial. He gave. Man. You see, in Romans chapter 8, 32, write this verse down also. It says that He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely that's unconditional give that sacrificial freely give us all things because he freely gave us his son now that you know that this is the first time that word shows up in all the bible you can read the rest of the story and you have a deeper insight as to what Jesus Christ did for you and for me because of the father's great love for you and me and you'll start seeing things in this story and in this passage that speak exactly to Christ and what He did. And not only that, but guys, it'll teach you how to be a husband in here. Ladies, it'll teach you what kind of a guide to look for as it pertains to love. And it'll teach each and every single one of you guys what kind of a servant to be to the lost world. Are you unconditional and sacrificial with the people you go to school with? It's hard to love people in this day and age. <laughs> it gets really, really rough to, to love, especially wait until you guys get into the workforce. Because right now you guys go to school with people that your clay and their clay is still moldable. But when you get to college and their minds are already made up, and then you get into the workforce, you start working with other adults who have been adults for a long time. And they're so stubborn and set in their ways. And it becomes harder to witness to them, not just because they're so set in their ways and their, their minds are completely made up, don't bother me with the truth or the facts, but just because of all the life experience they have, they're harder and they're colder. And it makes you not want to share your faith with them. You guys don't realize how good you have it right now in high school with how easy it is, comparatively speaking. I know it's hard. I know there's difficulties. I'm not putting you guys down on that. But comparatively speaking, it is easy witnessing to these kids. You guys are the authorities. You have the book. You have the authority right here. They don't know yet. They haven't made up their minds yet. And if they think they have, it's easily disputable to take this book and just slay each and every single one of their arguments. It gets a little bit harder when you go to college. It gets even harder the older you get. Even so, doesn't matter what stage we're at, whether we're adults or whether in the senior high, in high school, we are called to love unconditionally and sacrificially 
as Christ. Bible says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Because the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In order for us to have peace with God, he had to sacrifice his son. He was the only sacrifice that could have done it. And next, look at verse 5. Genesis 22 is awesome because it's not only the first mention of the word love, of any form of it, but in verse 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. This is the very first mention of the word worship in all the Bible. And contrary to what you see in Christian music today, contrary to what you see in most Christian churches today, worship in this context, the very first mention of it, has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with singing and praise and worship. Worship here on your outline shows it's not just about singing songs and feeling good, but that it will always involve sacrifice. It's a life-changing encounter with God. You see, in this passage here, Isaac, being the promise heir, the heir to the promise of what God had promised Abraham, that, man, I am going to take your seed, Abraham, and I'm going to multiply it as the stars in the sky. Abraham knew that. So think about it. If you had a promise from God like that, that your child was going to be the one from which all this, these nations were going, to, were going to come from him, or this nation of people were going to come from him, wouldn't you want to be as cautious as possible, as protective, and even in some cases maybe overly protective as possible? Because it's through him that the seed, it's through him the promise was going to come. In my conversation with God, he told me this. So I better make sure that he's taken care of. So why did he ask me to sacrifice him? Well, as we just saw in verse 1, he's testing him. But you don't always know that at the time when you're going through your tests and your trials. What I believe, because I've seen this happen in my life, I believe that Isaac became an idol in Abraham's heart. That he became too overprotective, too overly cautious. Loved so much this idea that, oh, it's through me and through my seed that Isaac is going to come, or that the, 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 the promised heir, Jesus Christ, was going to come, the Messiah. And I'm going to keep this, this so close. I'm going to make sure that he, he fulfills this and that he doesn't stray. And so I'm going to be so preoccupied with Isaac and raising him up and, and making sure that he stays on the straight and narrow that it became all about Isaac, 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 Isaac. And Isaac became this little idol set up on his heart, a place that belongs strictly for God. And God had to put him through this test to remove this heart-strung attachment so that God could sit back on His rightful throne inside Abraham's heart. God will put you through tests if there's something like that in your life. If you have something, an attachment in your life that is grabbing your heart springs, your heart strings, sorry, and you're not willing to lay it down on the altar and say, God, this vessel is all for you. This life is all for you. I've let things get in my way, get in my life that have taken the place of you. It's taken my time away from you. It's taken my talent away from you. It's taken my treasure away from you. And I'm holding on a little bit too tight to it, and I need to let it go. And that's what happened here. It was a life-changing encounter that he had with God. In those moments, you need to say what Proverbs 23 says. You need to reckon what Proverbs 23 says. God is usually in these moments of trial saying, My son, give me thine heart. We're called to keep our hearts with all diligence. Why? The issues of life. The things you're going through. It's not the things that you add into your life that defile a man in Matthew 15. No, it's what comes out of you. Because inside is defiled. 
And when those things that are in start coming out of your life, the issues of life coming out of your heart and out of the overflow or the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks, man, you got to be careful. You got to make sure your heart is completely given over to God every single morning of your life. That's worship. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just sometimes on Wednesday nights. Worship is sacrificing. It is giving over of yourself to Him. You know what sacrifice involves? You want to take this down, make these notes. It's a sacrifice of something extremely valuable. It's done by faith. You reckon it dead because Isaac was as good as dead. And you let God bring it back to life if He so chooses. There have been many things in my life. I remember specifically, there was a point in my life after the Bible Institute where I was like, you know what? You know what Bible Institute taught me? That appeal and that draw of ministry from a fleshly or even an emotional standpoint, it's dead. It was dead. I had to kill that thing because I was, maybe a part of me was seeking it for my own vain glory. And I needed to let God sacrifice it. And I gave it over to Him so that in due time, He would resurrect it again in my life. Maybe there's things in your life that you have allowed to get attached to you that you need to sacrifice over to God because you let it take the place of the throne of God that belongs strictly to Him. If that's the case, you might need to have some one-on-one time with Him. 2 Corinthians 8.5 says, And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord as unto us by the will of God. That's worship. Giving of yourself to God. Giving yourself over to Him and to His will. Hey, let me ask you guys, what sin are you struggling with right now? What issue? Is it depression? Depression is not found in the Bible, but sorrow is. What issue are you going through right now? Look up the very first time that God mentions it in the Bible. That'll help set up a pattern of how it's used throughout the rest of the Bible. You know what I love about that? You know how easy it is to get a whole slew of verses that you can memorize to help you with that issue? You know how easy it is to develop a Bible study that you could teach somebody very, very easily? But I can't teach. I don't know how to teach. You don't have to have teaching skills. You know what you do? You just have a list of verses, know what the verses say based upon you studying it out, and then share it with somebody. That's the best kind of teaching when it's just Bible, Bible, Bible. Here's what the verse says. Here's how it applies to my life. Next verse. Share that with somebody. That's how you begin. Don't think that you're inadequate. Don't think you can't do it. Remember, the Bible says that we've all been made ministers in the ministry of reconciliation. So how are you doing at reconciling the lost world unto His dear Son in your own personal worship? All right, next page. Some examples of God's consistency with numbers. This is pretty neat. Not only does the first word of something show up, does it actually establish a pattern for how God uses it in the rest of the Bible, but even numbers. I kind of teased this on Wednesday night with the number 40. But the number 3, did you know that the number 3 is a picture of something? We saw this when we looked at the the number 7 rule of creation. But three represents the structure of the universe. It's a picture of the triune nature of God. God speaks through creation. He is three, yet one. You see that number three through the Bible most of the time. Most of the time, not every time. There's something that God is saying through that passage that has to do with His nature, who He is. Turn over to Genesis chapter 5. Uh, you might want to make a note next to this. The study sheet says Genesis 5.5 is the first mention. That's actually not technically true. You want to write down Genesis 1.23 because of why? The fifth day. Thank you. The fifth day. Again, it's any form of the word. But here we are in Genesis chapter 5, verse 5. And we see in all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he what? Died. died. You know what happens here in the fifth chapter? 
All throughout the fifth chapter, you know what this is kind of a, a nomenclature this chapter is given? It's called the great funeral chapter of the Bible. It's after Adam and Eve sinned. It's after you see the fruit of their sin. Cain and Abel, who were born and reproduced in Adam and Eve's fallen image, you see them murder, or you see Cain murder his brother Abel. And now, after everybody grows up, after all of the kids are born, something's happening that was never intended to happen. Death. He died. He died. He died. Death. 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 All throughout chapter 5, which means 5 is associated with death in the Bible. Look at these words that are here. Death, grave, beast, Satan, devil. What do they all have in common? What do they all have in common? Jack? Sin? Yeah. They do. Yeah. How many letters? Five letters for each of these words. Hmm. Hmm. Second check, check mark. In the book of 2 Samuel, men were killed when they were struck under the fifth rib. It said that's where your heart is. You can check those passages out later. In Acts chapter 5, verse 5, as the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, Ananias is killed by God for holding back from the offerings. So you see, 5 establishes a pattern throughout the Bible of death. Ooh, number 6. Well, that's pretty ominous. Revelation 13, 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a what? Man. And his number is 600. Three score, a score is 20, so 20 times 3 is... 60 and 6. 666. It's the number of man. 6 is the number of man, and boy does God emphasize it. Oh, and as a side note, Adam was created on the sixth day. So what you do with information like this is put it into your, your Blue Letter Bible app or whatever Bible tool that you use. How else does God use the sixth day? What other mentions of the word six are there? Now, again, you have to filter through some of the ones like, you know, when they're going through chron uh, chronologies and, you know, maybe you have, oh, and he was born on the sixth day or six this or, you know. But there are some other interesting things that are snuck into those chronologies. I'll have to pull that up at another time. Because uh, sometimes when they're numbering people, there's one person, I want to say in Chronicles, I don't know the reference off the top of my head. There's a person in Chronicles as David is numbering Israel, and he just so happens to have this number too. So you look at that man, you look up, well, how does that man, what does that man's name mean? Does he show up anywhere else in the Bible? It's interesting. Number seven, God is finished with creation and he rests. Seven is God's number for completion. We saw that already in Genesis 2. Some other examples. Joshua 6, 4 with Jericho's fall. By the way, there's seven letters in the word Jericho. Eh. Israel is instructed to march around the city seven days. And on the seventh day, they're supposed to do it seven times. And they're told to blow seven trumpets. You have walls that are impeding your walk with God in your life. Might be something you need to do and bring it to completion in order to kill that sucker. Not to mention Genesis 7 you have Noah's clean animals that were to be brought in by sevens. And the book of Revelation is all over with sevens. It just so happens to be God's book completing the Bible. You have seven churches, seven spirits, seven golden candlesticks, seven stars, seven angels, seven lamps of fire, a book of seven seals, seven horns with seven eyes on the lamb, seven trumpets, seven thunders, 7,000 people die in an earthquake in Revelation 11:13. You find a dragon with seven horns and seven crowns, and seven plagues, and seven golden vials, and seven mountains, and seven kings. Just in case, you know, the pattern wasn't already established that it's about completing things. Number eight. Eight is the number representing new beginnings. Makes sense. If seven brings about completion, the number eight is a new beginning. God started over after the flood with eight people, which is ironically found in Genesis chapter eight. 
And in Luke 2.21, you see in the Bible, male babies were instructed to be circumcised on the eighth day. And what is physical circumcision? A picture of spiritual circumcision, which according to Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 and Romans chapter 6, it is a picture of salvation. New beginnings in your life. Genesis 9. The very first mention of that, you see that nine seems to be a number God uses related to fruit bearing. I didn't actually look that one up. Oh, Genesis 9.1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There's nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Do you know them? Do you exemplify them in your life? It's a fruit of the Spirit, which means it's evidence that you're saved. Better know them if you're exemplifying them. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you see that there's nine spiritual gifts. Not to mention, how long is a woman pregnant for? Andy? I don't know what a woman is. <laughs> that was good. Relevant, I liked it. Nine months. Hey, somebody tell me, how many letters are in the word Holy Bible? How many letters are in the word King James? Oh. Hey, what year is the King James Bible published? 1 plus 6 plus 1 plus 1. Oh. Just kind of saying it's a little weird. It's a little weird, isn't it? All right, turn over to Genesis 14. <laughs> Genesis 14, verse 4. I'm just saying, you really start thinking about these things, God knows what He's doing. He built it into creation. He built it into His Word. Genesis 14, 4. Twelve years they served that guy, and in the thirteenth year, they what? Is everybody in Genesis 14? Or are you guys still mind blown about the nine... Okay. Genesis 14.4. Twelve years they, they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Thirteen seems to indicate rebellion or sinful things. Hey, since we're right here, look at Genesis 13.13. 13. I was born in the thirteenth year. But the men of Sodom were, were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Turn over to Exodus 13.13. 13. And every firstling of an ass, which is a donkey, which is one of the most stubborn, rebellious animals, a picture of lost mankind. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, because it's stubborn, then thou shalt break his neck. It perishes. And all the firstborn of man among the children shalt thou redeem. Rebellion. Turn over to Proverbs 13, 13. Talking about patterns today. Hold your place in Genesis, by the way. We're coming back there to close. Well, it's a good thing you know where Genesis is at. Hannah. Proverbs 13, 13. Hannah, why don't you go ahead and read that one? Well, <laughs> I'm already moving on to 40. All right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Proverbs 13, 13. Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. You despise the word, you reject, you rebel against the word, what's going to happen to you? According to Exodus 13, 13, your neck's going to get broken. 13 seems to indicate rebellion or sinful things. Hey, somebody remind me. This is more on the rebellion side of things. Uh, somebody remind me. Uh, in uh, the spirit of 76, 7 plus 6, uh, what did our country do? We rebelled. And how many colonies were there? And how many stripes are on the, the flag? How many stars were on that flag? Mm-hmm. Judas Iscariot, 13 letters. Nimrod. Nimrod was the 13th from Adam. 
in the lineage, in the downline. He was the 13th. You can see that by just counting out how many people were in Genesis 5. And then when it picks up with Noah in Genesis 10, Nimrod's number 13. Somebody remind me, what did Nimrod start? Tower of Babel. In rebellion against God. Revelation 17.5, speaking of Nimrod and what he started in Babylon. And upon her forehead was a name, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Covered this when we went over our study in Revelation. This is the harlot church. This is the uh, counterfeit church that Satan has used to come against the work of God in the church age. There just so happens to be 13 capitalized words in Revelation 17 talking about the religion that Nimrod started in Babylon. Turn back to Genesis chapter 7. Thank you to those of you who held your place. Genesis chapter 7. Reader for verse 4. You made eye contact. Anderson. Uh, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. Forty is a number related to a time of testing. You can also put down next to that, it's a, time of, it's a picture of judgment. Those two words go hand in hand. Not just judgment as in destruction. Judgment is also a word you use talking about discernment. Having good judgment. You have to put things to the test in order to have good judgment. Genesis 25, 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. He passed the test. 40 is not too old to get married, see? Esau, in Genesis 26, 34, was 40 years old when he married a Hittite, an enemy of Israel. He failed the test. And boy, did judgment come for him. Numbers 14.33, you see that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Somebody tell me, how long did Jesus fast for in Matthew chapter 4? 40 days, and then what happened? He was put to the test. An example that applies both rules, or both of these consistency points, along with a few other rules. Turn over to Genesis 1. We'll end here. So both the first mention... And numbers, as well as applying some of the other rules we've learned so far in how to study the Bible. Look at verse 19. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the heaven in the open firmament of heaven. Mm. Such a deep spiritual passage. Hmm. I think I'll go on with the rest of my day now. Encouraged by that verse. Now see, how often in your Bible reading do you come across a passage like that and you just think, it's really nothing to that. What could possibly come from that? Every single day you guys read verses. And you think that because I read verses. Your leaders read verses like that and you're like, okay, next verse. And I'm just going to keep on going. But then you apply this rule, the law of first mention. And you know what you find? That for some strange reason, verse 20 was the verse that God decided to put the very first time the word life showing up. The first mention, bullet point there, the first mention of the word life. And not only that, and the reason I included verse 19 on there was to show you that it came after the which day? Fourth day. This is also the first mention of the word for. And if you want to make a little side note about this, four is the number in the Bible, the pattern that is set forth, that talks about the earth. And so you look at this, and you think about life. You think about life, and you look at the verse, you see, okay, how do I connect this? It says, let the waters, waters, bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. Waters are going to bring forth abundantly the moving creature. Obviously, this is a verse that says you must be baptized to be saved. Just kidding. It's a joke. But think about it, guys. When you think about waters, 
bringing forth life abundantly. Does it jog anyone's mind at all? John chapter 4. Jesus answered and said unto her, this woman at this well that he just so happened to meet, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Verse 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting Life. Good. Everyone can read the screen. Awesome. I was worried about that. And this life, when you compare this and compare Scripture with Scripture and do cross-references like we're doing and implement this rule, you also find in John chapter 10, 10, it's the reason why Jesus came. To give us this living water that brings forth new life, but not only new life, that they might have life and that they might have it more, what? Abundantly. Which is also found in Genesis 1.20. That in this water, it gives abundant life to every moving creature. And then it comes after the fourth day. Second bullet point, Jesus came to give living water unto everlasting life and a life more abundant. But then you start thinking about, about this day, this whole fourth day thing. Anybody remember what I said at the very beginning of class with days and how that seventh day, there was no end to it? The day of the Lord, there was no end? Somebody tell me, what is that day of the Lord? It's the theme of the entire Bible, and it's when Jesus Christ is what? Doing what He did in chapter 2. What was He doing in chapter 2? sitting down on His throne, resting from all the work that He did for all of eternity. It's the day of the Lord. It's the theme of the entire Bible. And then in the course of your Bible study, you come across a strange verse like this one. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Then we better perk our ears up. I don't want to be ignorant of this, do you? That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, we also know from this day of the Lord that when Jesus is sitting down on His throne in Jerusalem, how long does that day last? It's called the millennium because it lasts for how long? Louder, please. A thousand years. And that ends the time as we know it. We then enter into eternity. So you have that seventh day, which is 1,000 years. And if one day with the Lord is as 1,000 years, I go backward from this day, which happens at the end of a seven-year tribulation. And before that, we had 2,000 years of the church age, approximately. And wouldn't you know it? That in the Old Testament, from creation until the time of Christ, that there just so happened to be 4,000 years of human history. So from creation, from creation to the millennial reign, there's 7,000 years of human history. And if one day is as a thousand years, that basically turns it out to be seven days. Hmm. Verse 19, And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And after this, God said, When did Jesus come onto the earth again? After the fourth day right around 0 AD before days 5 and 6 the church age began do you guys see that look at your outline he Jesus represented by the number 3 because it's the Godhead 
came to the earth after the fourth day, where he would die, represented by the number five, for lost man, represented by the number six, to make him complete in Christ, represented by the number seven, and give him a new beginning, represented by the number eight, where man can grow to be fruitful, represented by the number nine. And now all of a sudden, verses 19 and 20 of Genesis 1 are a little bit deeper than we initially thought. And these numbers take on new significance. And all of a sudden, verses start popping out all throughout the Bible because of the consistency and the pattern that God has established all throughout His Word. The point I want you guys to get with this is this. I know there are difficult passages to be understood in the Bible. That's why we go through these rules. But do you see how it's really not that difficult? The Bible is simple. God wrote His Word to reveal truth, not to hide it. Knowledge is easy to him that understandeth. If you just understand, if you implement these very, very simple rules, the Bible just starts to expand and become so more vast than how we typically treat it. And you'll crave to want to get in your Bibles tomorrow morning. You will want to spend more time than just the 20 minutes as you're rushing to get in the car to drive off to school because you're late. You will want to get done with your homework sooner so that now you can start not just reading the Bible, but actually start implementing these rules and studying the Bible. And you'll want to then take all of the notes that you have and put them together in a concise fashion to teach someone else in the form of discipleship or a Bible study that you can lead your classmates too. These kinds of things should spark this in you because of how awesome this book is. So is it to you? Thank you.